Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message about the resurrected Christ appearing to his disciples. You can follow along with this message in Luke 24, 37 through 40, and John 20, 19 through 23. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Do you know that truth? Do you know that truth that you're not alone? Do you know that truth that you're not alone? We continue life of Jesus. We only have two weeks. You still reading? You keeping up? Last week, we asked for you to fill out the card that was inserted in the program where you just answered the question, How has the Life of Jesus series impacted me? We got hundreds of these responses, but you can still, you can turn your card in if you brought it back today. There are slots in the outside walls. You can turn it into an information desk. Uh, You can also answer that question online. But I urge you, reflect on that issue. And if you say, well, I haven't been impacted at all, then ask yourself, did I put forth effort? Did I read the passages? Did I pray over them? Did I, did I take some steps to try to learn and grow? Now, you may say, well, Perry didn't say anything in the whole series I didn't know. Then you probably need my job. That's right. You can do a better job. But let me urge you, put forth your part and God will meet you with his. Today's message is entitled doubt. Now, here's the question. Raise your hand. If you have any doubts about the life of Jesus or the reality of faith, let me see some hands. Come on now, y'all are just scared. Any doubts about the life of Jesus or the reality of faith? I'll put mine up. That's right. Now there's a few up. Especially when something happens, your, your circumstances turn bad. You suffer a loss, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a situation. I think it's very normal to ask some questions, even some anguished questions. How can God be real and I'm suffering like this? None of you have ever felt like that. Now, let me see some hands. You look at your life, your situation. It doesn't square somehow with what you believe about life or, or about faith, about God, about his spirit at work. We're going to focus today on doubters. And I think it includes us. Our theme verse, you take out your message guide. The theme verse is there toward the top. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And we'll see the context of his statement toward the end of this message. But do you believe? Where do you stand? None of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. Jerry had a, Fry had a vision of him one time. And some of you may have. But if you believe, you believed without seeing Jesus physically. 
So have you believed in Jesus as Savior and as Lord? We turn to reading 2.16. On page 2.50. In the evening of that first day of the week, first day of the week is Sunday. This is the evening of Resurrection Sunday. The disciples were gathered together in an unspecified location. It could have been the same upper room that where they had had the Last Supper. Perhaps it was a friend of theirs who had given them this room. And th- this may be where they're hanging out together. In a sort of reeling in their doubt. The doors were locked because of their fear of the Jews. See, they, they expected that the temple police might arrive at any moment to arrest them all, to end their movement, because they knew that Jesus was put to death, not because he had committed any crime. He hadn't, he hadn't said anything that was blasphemous, and yet they hated him, and they drove Pilate, the Roman governor, to put him to death. So they're sitting here wondering whether these guards are coming from them, for them as well. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. Now, what state was Jesus in? He passed, he appeared in this, in their midst. Was he already in his glorified state? Glorified state is the the state that Jesus is in today in eternity. It's the state that we will be put into to live eternally. So it's it's a body that can live in an everlasting fashion. So has Jesus already been glorified here? Who said that? No, you're saying. I think you're right. Well, then how did he pass through walls? How did he pass through without opening the door that was locked? If he hasn't been glorified yet. See, I think the scripture indicates that Jesus would not be glorified until after he ascended into heaven, which would occur 40 days later. But I want to remind you of some other instances that you've seen if you've been reading along. On one occasion, he walked through a crowd that was intent to throw him off of a cliff. What city did that happen in or village? Nazareth. Oh, give out some gold stars. Yes, Nazareth, Luke chapter 4. Another time, there was a crowd that wanted to stone him. And the the passage says he was hidden from them. John chapter 8. Now, how does that happen? They were trying to throw one man off of a cliff. Everybody's attention was on this one man. And he walked away. Another time, they were going to stone this same man. And he was hidden from their presence. It appears possible, doesn't it, that God enabled this ability even though Jesus was in a human state. Was it, was it a, a power that Jesus could tap into? Was it a work of the Holy Spirit protecting him? I'm not sure how it happens, but that's just the, the fact you can see in the passage. Now, it's interesting that when he appeared, he said, peace to you. Why did he say peace to you? Yeah, they were scared. Calm their hearts to reassure these frightened disciples. But it's interesting also that when he appeared and now he's been raised. And when he said peace to you, he's also speaking theologically. 
because his death made peace between God and man. And his resurrection confirmed that God accepted his sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. Romans 5, 1, Ephesians 2. Now we want to see several things that Jesus did in this passage. And the first is that the resurrected Jesus confronted his followers. We're at Luke 24, verse 37. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Now, why were they so startled? Why were they so terrified? You think Jesus was dazzling, brilliant light like the, like the uh, angels at the tomb? Who thinks it was because he was shining? Well, then why were they so scared? Yeah, he passed right through a door. Y'all are really learning this lesson well to despiritualize all these stories. And just read it for what it says. He supernaturally appeared in their midst. Now, they're not convinced about the resurrection. And they know that no human can just simply materialize inside a locked room. So they thought they were seeing a ghost. And they panicked. You think that's normal? I think it is too. Why are you troubled? He asked them. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now here's where he's confronting. He's, confronting doesn't always mean that you're angry. It's just, it's just he offered the truth. He asked a question. He engaged them. I think there's a mild rebuke here. Why are you so upset? Why do you have these doubts? Because these disciples are afraid and they were, they were hesitant to believe that Jesus was really alive. Then he challenged them to use their senses to discover that he wasn't a ghost or a hallucination. Continuing at verse 39, look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Why was he showing them his hands and feet? Yeah, he had, he had wounds where the spikes had been driven through. And I told y'all that the Greek for hand actually includes the wrist. It's more likely historically that he was actually crucified through the wrist, the palms, couldn't sustain the weight of a man. So, and they've even found some evidence archeologically that, that crucifixion occurred through the wrist. So he's showing them his wounds and he invites them, them to touch them to confirm he was flesh and blood. Who thinks anyone touched him? Jamie, you think anyone touched him? We're not talking about Thomas here. But while they still could not believe for joy, and they were amazed, they wanted to believe. They wanted to be joyful. They wanted to be convinced, but they were hesitant. They were afraid. So Jesus offered further proof. He continues. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? 
So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Why was that evidence that he was real? Who said that? Yeah, ghosts don't have an appetite. Ghosts don't eat. They don't have a physical, you know, digestive system. So ghosts don't eat. And that proved Jesus taking this fish and eating it turned on the switch for them. Now, was it the spirit of God that really revealed it or was it the act? Perhaps some of both. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, just as Jesus confronted these disciples following his resurrection, he's also asking each of us whether we have doubts. Doubts about his resurrection. Questions about his identity. Do you have doubts? See, I believe that Jesus, we see it in this passage, I believe Jesus is patient with doubters. And I believe that Jesus is willing to provide what we need to know that he is real and his story is true. What is it that you need? What kind of evidence? Are you hesitant today? Are you asking for proof? You think that there's anything wrong with asking for proof? I think there's nothing wrong with asking for proof. Just like I don't think there's anything wrong with doubting. If you take the doubt toward God, that's back into relationship with him. Now, if you stand back and you're just angry and you just refuse and reject because you can't figure something out, that's a different matter. But you can take your doubts, your questions, your concerns, take them right to God. You know, we have resources in the bookstore if you have some questions. Josh McDowell wrote a very fine, small book called More Than a Carpenter. Lee Strobel has written a number of books that are are very helpful, very persuasive. The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, um, also The Case for Christ. A scholar named Norman Geisler has written a book for skeptics and one for critics. Avail yourself of those resources. Don't ignore your doubts. But don't avoid taking some steps to resolve them. The resurrected Jesus also communicated their assignment. And of course, that's a reference to his disciples. At verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So once these disciples, these followers had been convinced he truly was alive, had been raised from the dead, Jesus proceeded to give them an assignment, some instructions. And really what we see here is a preview of the Great Commission. The Great Commission won't be given in Jerusalem. After they travel back to Galilee is when Jesus will speak the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28. But Jesus has already given them an important assignment. And then he tells them how they can carry out this assignment. How they can be empowered for this most important task. 
And he says at verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's, now, it's interesting that the Greek word pneuma, from which we get pneumatic hoses, is translated in English as breath and breeze and spirit and ghost. The same Greek word is translated all those different ways. And so in John 3, when Jesus said you must be born again by the Spirit, and the Spirit is like the breeze, he's using the same Greek word in different uses. So there's a comparison of these different nouns. Well, how many of you think that when Jesus breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit? You do. Who else? How about you, Warburton? Did they receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them? No. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. This was purely symbolic. Because when did they receive the Holy Spirit? Pentecost. The feast of Pentecost. But Jesus is saying, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Spirit. But he's saying, you will receive the Spirit. It hadn't happened yet, but he's given them their task and he's told them how they could carry it out with the power of the spirit within. He didn't actually impart the spirit at this occasion. That happens later at the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Now, how many of the original disciples are in this room? Ten. Who's missing? Thomas is missing. Who else is missing? Judas, who's died by his own hand, Matthew 27. Now, it does appear, and again, when I say, it, it, when I say something like that, y'all pray it through, study it out, but it appears that at least some of these followers have already been forgiven. Some or all of the 10 followers through Jesus' word. Because John 15, verse 3, says, you have been cleansed by my word. But they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. So you see, it's, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Because we link the two together. Here's why. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit would complete the transition between the old and the new covenants. Now, do you think the Holy Spirit existed under the old covenant? Yeah. And, the, and did he carry out the same functions? Essentially. The Spirit did regenerate. The Spirit did gift. Even very specific gifts. The, the artists who decorated the tabernacle were gifted by the Holy Spirit in craftsmanship, for example. A tangible gift. And people were empowered for tasks. When Saul became king, he received the spirit to enable him to rule. But the spirit in the Old Testament, the, under the Old Covenant, did not remain within people permanently. Now, under the New Covenant, every believer is permanently indwelt. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. 
every believer is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8. Every believer is gifted in supernatural ways for service. Now, am I just talking about the talents that you have? No. You can be given talent supernaturally by the Spirit, I believe. But the, the Scripture is real clear. The types of gifts that are given by the Spirit to enable us to carry out the assignment God's given us. You can see a list in 1 Corinthians 12. They're found in a number of places. Also found in Romans. Also found in Ephesians. But the Holy Spirit's new covenant work didn't actually begin until the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And Pentecost wouldn't happen for 50 days. And that would follow Jesus' ascension to heaven, which would occur in 40 days. But since that time, every Christian, every born-again person, every believer, those are synonymous terms, receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And I'm convinced the Spirit actually is at work even before the instant of salvation. Because that conviction of sin that happens, being convinced of the truth in, in an undeniable way, is a work, and sometimes it's, it's a progressive work of the Spirit. But by the Spirit, you are born again in an instant. That doesn't mean you can always pinpoint the instant, but you have evidence after it's occurred. And some of you can pinpoint the instant. And the Spirit of God, once he's given you new birth, which is regeneration, the Spirit of God remains within you how long? You don't believe you have the Spirit in you now, do you? So that means you're carrying out all the assignments God's given you, Christ has given you. Utilizing the Spirit within, the power, the strength he's given. Look at Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Aren't you living in the flesh? Aren't y'all? Anybody in here not living in the flesh? But he says, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. And what he means is that's the, that's the totality of your existence. You're not merely in the flesh. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you are in the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that should be leading your life, not the flesh, which is where sin still dwells. But you're, under, you're not subject to it anymore. Since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, those are synonymous terms. He does not belong to him. So if you don't have the spirit of God within you, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, those are all terms given to the Holy Spirit. It means you haven't yet been born again. Doesn't mean you can't be, but it means you haven't yet been born again. And then he says this in verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Does that mean that disciples have the power to forgive sins? Come on, who's courageous? 
I don't know who said it over here, but that was right. Disciples don't have the power to forgive sin because sin is against God. Only God can forgive sin. So what does this mean? It appears to say that, doesn't it? I mean, I want you to read it closely and say, wait a minute, I've got some kind of conflict here, right? That's what you should do. Read it closely and say, I've got a problem here. This says, this says the disciples had the power to forgive sin, but I know that can't be true. Well, what you do when you read a verse like that, you then have to understand it theologically in the context of all of Scripture, you see. And you always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Be careful to found your belief on one verse. We synthesize it together. What Jesus is saying here is that a person, usually a Christian, but it could even be an unbeliever that can communicate the gospel, then has the ability to declare in communicating the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that anyone who genuinely repents and believes that good news is forgiven. Do you think you have that right? Bobby, do you have that right? You do have that right. In fact, that's your assignment. Because you, as believers in Christ, have been given the keys to the kingdom. Now, you don't control the kingdom, but guess what? In your message about the gospel, you can pass out keys. You can offer admission on behalf of Christ. Now the other side. He says if you don't. But if you don't. Uh, if you retain sins. Of any they're retained. What does that mean? Well it means that you also can warn. Using the truth of Christ. That if you reject Christ. If you refuse to believe. You will retain your sins. And you'll face God with those sins. That's what it means. John eight twenty four. How many of you know that God has given you an important assignment? I want to see hands. How many of you know you have an assignment from God? Now, here's the question. You know what I'm going to ask. Are you carrying it out? When's the last time you carried it out? When's the last time you offered the story of Jesus? Maybe you just told your own testimony or a little bit of it. Perhaps you just mentioned something about Christ. Maybe you just invited someone to your small group or brought them to church just as a a first step. But you have the power to aid someone into the kingdom of God. And you have the responsibility to do so. That's a weighty responsibility, isn't it? That's why you're given the spirit to aid you. And the scripture says you'll be, even be given the words to say when the time arises. The resurrected Jesus also convinced a doubter. But one of the 12 Thomas called twin. Why was he called a twin? Why? Yeah, he probably had a twin. 
Y'all just love to spiritualize everything, don't you? He probably had a twin brother or sister. Now, it could be that there was another disciple or another person who looked like him or acted like him. You know how sometimes you have two best friends and you say, y'all act like twins. It could be, it could be that, but it's, it's that there was some great similarity between Thomas and someone else, or he actually had a twin. That's all it means. And he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other, now imagine, he shows up now. What are the rest of them going to do? Do what? Come on, y'all had an extra hour of sleep. <laughs> Give me a little enthusiasm. So what, what would they do? They'd be telling the story. How many of them would tell the story? All of them at the same time. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. I mean, were they passive like some of you are acting? Well, Thomas, while you were gone, you just, I mean, I mean, well, I'll finish this later. No, he walks in the room and they're on top of him, aren't they? You won't believe what has happened while you were gone. We have seen the Lord. But he said this to them. If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Who thinks that's a rather strong statement? Now, this was a man with a personality. He must have been a very serious man, even a very somber one. One writer said he he probably had a melancholy temperament or disposition. Well, how do you know that? Well, you just read everything he ever said in the Gospels. Because he spoke several times. He spoke at John eleven eight and John eleven sixteen. He spoke at John 14, verses 2 and 3. He spoke in John 5. And in all of those times, you see a, a personality developing. And his comments were also expressing reservation or resistance, sometimes confusion, sometimes discouragement. On one occasion when people had threatened to kill Jesus in Jerusalem and now he's headed back to Jerusalem and Thomas says, you're going back where they wanted to kill you? I guess we'll all go and get killed. He may have been a little bit like Eeyore in his personality. But Thomas was at least a skeptic. And his comments were at least skeptical. They may have been cynical. Even when all these people, a room full of people that he knew and many of whom he trusted, he'd been with for several years. Some of them told him Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't believe it. He doubted it was possible. See, he was so sure that he would never see Jesus again that he needed some irrefutable and personal proof to believe. In fact, he said somewhat surprisingly, I think, that he wanted to put his finger into the wound in Jesus' hand caused by the spikes being driven through for crucifixion. 
And he wanted to put his hand into the wound in Jesus' side. What was that caused by? Roman stuck him in the side with a spear to see if he was dead. It was blood and water that poured out. Confirming his death. How was this said emotionally? What was Thomas' frame of mind emotionally? Is it angry? But was it, was it anger at the people or was it, was it anger fueled by this overwhelming disappointment? You ever gotten angry when you were really disheartened and disappointed about something? A deep sense of loss, a profound sorrow. Well, do you think his words seem disrespectful? Not disrespectful? Okay, Jesus is showing up. He's raised from the dead. Have you ever had like, have you ever like hit your thumb with a hammer when you're trying to hit a nail? Would you like someone to stick their finger on it afterward? Have you ever had a deep cut? Or, or anybody ever had surgery? Let me see. Who's had surgery? Well, what if somebody in your family wants to stick their hand into the incision site? That's what's happening. See how y'all just like to dress it up and spiritualize it? Jesus is a man raised from the dead. The hole in his side from a spear is real. And Thomas says, I want to stick my hand in that wound. That's what he was saying. That's real. His words sound a little arrogant, don't they? They do, to, do they to you? They do to me. Now, before we judge him too harshly, remember that the other disciples had also doubted the reports of Jesus' resurrection. This passage that we're reading right before this, if you read the, the um, other readings ahead of it, you'll see that it was the two from Emmaus, Emmaus who were telling this story. Before Jesus enters. And I preached on that last week. But remember, the women came and they said, well, we've been told by angels that he's raised from the dead. They didn't even believe him. And then Peter and John went to check for themselves, but they didn't see Jesus. So they're all at this place of going, we don't believe these women. We don't know whether it's happened or not. Even though the scripture predicted it. You can read that. John 20, Luke 24, Mark 16. Perhaps Thomas' doubt was greater because his sorrow was deeper. Thomas wasn't indifferent. You know what I mean by indifferent? Unconcerned, uncaring. I want you to understand, opposition to God, even anger towards God, isn't the farthest you can be away from God. Because if you're expressing anger towards God, you're already confirming he's real. The farthest you can be from faith in God is complacent indifference. I don't care. I don't even care enough to find out. That is the farthest you can be away from faith. 
And Thomas wasn't indifferent, was he? He might have been a little hostile. He was certainly deeply hurt. So we continue. See, unfortunately, I don't, I don't know how this happened, but somehow in this, in our Christian culture, we have made being angry or disappointed with God the worst attitude we can have toward God. Any parent ever had their child angry or disappointed with them? Come on, let me see them, get them up. Did that sever the relationship or did it open the door to deeper relationship? You see, honesty, even if it's not a positive emotion, is a step toward intimacy, not necessarily a step away. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again. I'm in reading 217. And Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace to you. Same thing he did before. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. How did Thomas feel when that was said to him? How would you have felt? Say it again, like an idiot. (laughs) At least embarrassed, if not humiliated. And then Jesus says, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Jesus singled out Thomas. And he knew what Thomas had said, though he wasn't in the the room at the time, apparently. Apparently. But look what he did. Jesus met Thomas at the point of his doubt and his disrespect. Jesus accommodated Thomas's bold, insensitive, even outrageous statement. Who sees rebuke? With no rebuke. With no rebuke. In fact, by saying, stick your... Hand, put your hand into my side. Dig your finger into my womb. Jesus is actually offering more pain. More suffering on his sake to save him. Don't miss this point. He could have said, haven't I done enough for you? You know I died for you. Mm -mm. He's coming back. He's wounded. He's been nailed through the wrist. He's been stabbed in the side. And he says, feel all you want. Feel all you want. Who thinks Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds? Somebody did earlier. I don't know. If you were Thomas, would you, have, would you have stuck your hand into his side? Feels a little bold, doesn't it? But we know that Thomas received what he needed, the proof he needed to believe. 
And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. Well, was it just humanly he now recognized or did the spirit do a work within him? You know, we come to sure faith by the spirit's revelation. So perhaps the spirit of God, because see, the spirit of God used the the physical words and acts of Jesus and also the supernatural revelation of the spirit. See, it's always two ways. It's always the word of God illuminated by the spirit of God that changes minds and hearts. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now the word blessed doesn't just mean you have become happy. Blessedness is actually something you receive from God when God accepts you. He makes you blessed. And today, if you possess the spirit, if you've been born again, you live in a blessed state. Are you aware of it? In the future, Jesus is saying, which includes today, Jesus wouldn't be present in the flesh for people to question him, to examine him, to touch his wounds. But he's just as present through his word and by his spirit. So as we read, we can be convinced of the truth of the gospel and the events of Jesus' life. Because you see, it's not because you, 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 you have to only read it humanly. It's because the spirit of God illuminates it to you and it becomes undeniable. There were people, physical people who saw the physical Jesus that never believed. Because salvation comes by revelation when the spirit of God convicts you of sin. Convinces you of truth. And then confirms faith within you by his presence. Look at Romans 10. So faith comes from what is heard. And it can be right now while I'm speaking from God's word. It could be in a small group. It can be when a friend tells you something about how he or she had their lives changed. But faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message of Christ. When the spirit of God illuminates the word of God. Do you have doubts? About Jesus' life, about his death, about his resurrection, about whether the Bible's true. I want you to know skeptics are always welcome here. And that's true in this room and it's true in Every small group and every student gathering and every gathering of children. Skeptics are always welcome. And I want you to realize Jesus knows your individual fears. He completely comprehends your doubts. In fact, Jesus knows what in your life caused you to have those doubts you know I've never yet I haven't yet met a person who disbelieved just because of something they read in a book some information every person I've ever known that doubted had some 
tragic or painful or disappointing experience in their lives that caused them to question the reality of God. Maybe it was a person they thought was a spiritual person who ended up damaging them in some terrible way. But Christ knows even what caused you to question. And he will accommodate whatever you need to believe. He'll extend to you his wounded hands. He'll let you feel the gash in his side. How can we get there? Well, here's a good start. Take this book. And you say, well, I've only halfway read it. Read it through. Not for more information, but ask Christ's spirit to give you an experience of his truth so that it becomes real and true and undeniable in you. You say, well, I wish we could touch Jesus. Well, you can touch people around you who have Jesus. See, Jesus is alive in the flesh in you. And you can see lives that have changed dramatically. I know one right there. And people can touch you and they can question you and they can watch you and they can ask, what happened to you? Do you have a story to tell? Tell it. Tell it. Counselors come to the front. There'll be counselors here that'll be happy to speak with you now about anything I've touched on or something else that you have a question of. They'll pray with you and they'll anoint with oil for healing. You come right on, counselors. Father God, we thank you that your son not only died for us, but he offers himself to us. And we can inspect him. We can look closely. We can even touch him in places he's been wounded. Because you care that much that we believe. We thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name, amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed week.